Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And the first thing that I need to do today, <laughs> at least according to my wife, is, uh, well, to apologize to you for what I did last week when I more or less cut off the story just at its most exciting point. <laughs> As you already know, uh, well, I had my own childish reason for doing that. But after seeing the look on my wife's face uh, when she discovered that I'd ended the podcast a little prematurely, well, uh, that look told me all that I needed to know about how most likely you felt about it as well. And uh, if you can accept my apology, uh, while knowing that, well, <laughs> I'm not actually sorry for doing that. <laughs> well, then you most definitely must be a psychedelic thinker because uh, you are someone who isn't afraid of what Terence McKenna called the coincidentia oppositorum. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to replay the part of the story that we ended with last week, and you will finally learn how it came out. For what it's worth, uh, Peter Gorman's encounter with the pirates, though, was significantly more dangerous than that of the old lion tamer Clyde Beatty's swinging on a vine. And in case you're wondering what happened to Clyde when his vine broke, well, as it happened, uh, well, there was a little ledge just below him when it broke, and he landed safely on it. I don't remember what happened after that because there was this big collective moan from the audience. Well, we all went home swearing that we would never again watch a to-be-continued movie. Of course, uh, none of us held to that promise the next weekend. <laughs> now, uh, not to overdo this too much, but Peter Gorman has played a major, and I say a major role, in bringing ayahuasca into mainstream discussions and in creating a public atmosphere in which we are now seeing cannabis becoming legal throughout the U.S. And on top of that, it is Peter who has brought Sappho, or Cambo, to us here in the West. And in my opinion, that's a life's work that is every bit as important as, well, the work of Leary or McKenna. The world is a much better place than it would have ever been had Peter Gorman not had the adventures that he did, and uh, then gathered up his courage to write about them here in the hostile political environment of the states. So let's continue with the rest of this interview where we'll discover that encountering river pirates in the Amazon wasn't necessarily the most hair-raising thing that he has done. Let's face it, there aren't many of us who would have the courage to expose DEA undercover operations. That, my dear friends, takes a major dose of courage. And now, here once again, is the writer, editor, and world-class adventurer, Peter Gorman, telling the story that I so rudely cut off just before its end last week. Maybe our sixth night or seventh night, we were in the Yamari, going to a military base, Peloton, <clears throat> halfway up to where we were going to finally run into the Matzes. And before we got to Peloton, a light came around the corner behind us, around a bend. And it was moving too fast, with too much intention, and we instantly knew, oh my goodness, this is going to be pirates. We had heard they were, we had been told there were pirates on the river, and sure enough, they came up alongside us, they caught up with us, 
and there probably were 10 men, but it looked to me like 30 or 50 or 100. And uh, my driver, the son of the owner of the boat that I'd rented, and his um, Timonel, the fellow who steered the boat at night, I steered it during the day, he steered it at night, um, they both said, those guys are drunk and they're going to kill you. So we're going to join their boat and drink with them. And I looked and it's like, well, I've got Chepa and me. And I said, Chepa, get below. Below was a space of maybe three, three and a half feet. And I said, I don't want these drunk guys to see you because then they're going to come on the boat and kill kill you. So you get down below and I'll see what I can do. And in the course of seeing what I could do meant I picked up a machete and had a beautiful, beautiful knife and I began to yell at them with force of ayahuasca. It was not my force. I suddenly opened my mouth and a kind of a raging torrent of New Yorkese came out saying, who wants to be the first motherfucker on this boat? Who's going to be number one? Because I'm going to take your goddamn hand off. And number two, I'm going to stab you. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Knowing I'm, my dad... This is preemptive because I was going to die. They hadn't threatened you. They had pulled up alongside and said, we're taking your motor. We're taking your, we're oh, gonna take your motor and kill you. That's oh, This is okay. what's going to happen. So this is, what, yeah. this is what's going to happen. Oh. And so like I said, get below. My guys said they're going to kill us. We would join them. Okay, we look like them. We're just part of the pirates now. See you later. Which left me and her. And I said, get below. And Why were you tripping on ayahuasca? No, I had done ayahuasca a couple of days earlier. But I had the power of the juice in me. And so when I started, my fear combined with the spirit of ayahuasca made my voice come out very powerfully. It almost physically stopped them for a moment, I think. It's true. And after two minutes of me knowing I'm lying. Because I always knew him, like charming, nice, type, but not that, that part with him. So he was like the baddest mother. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, he thought, you know, that's our lives or them. Knight in shining armor? No. What happens was, she was the knight in shining armor. Suddenly, she's standing next to me, this most beautiful girl in the world. I I told her to get down, just lift up the hatch and climb down the three-step ladder to the hold, so even if they kill me, they won't see you, so you'll live. And suddenly, she's... And I turned around and I said, what the freak are you doing here? I said, get below. And she said, what do you got? And I said, I got a machete and a knife. Takes her hand off behind her back and goes, now you got two machetes. <laughs> and now I was able to change it to, who want to be the first three guys? Who want to be the first three guys? Because she's going to take your hand off. And she started speaking to them in Portuguese. Or what do they call it? Riverino Portuguese. Like a... a Apart, I used to speak a little bit of Portuguese. Like a mix. My of dad used to take me in the river. And suddenly they were hearing their own sound. For me, they were hearing anger, English, and fear. From her, they were hearing, "You think he's lying? This guy is crazy, mother. He is going to hurt somebody, and then I'm going to have to hurt somebody because we're not dying tonight." And I think in the end, I talked them to death. And they were so bored, like, can we go now? <laughs> can we go? We're getting sober, obviously. And then we were like, okay, we have to tell them how cool they were. Oh, you're so cool that you knew 
I'm a white guy and there's a paper trail you get caught you're smart for pirates so you should just leave now and when we finally gave them enough face to leave they just drove off right yeah they did they took off and we were like and my guys jumped on the boat at the last second they were like that was cool you know Oh, they didn't there kill you. Other white guys hiding? Or something? No, no. They were two Spanish guys. The owner of the boat's son, who was running the motor, and one assistant was with him. They were, the, the four of us were the boat crew. And so they had jumped on the other boat to save their skins. They jumped back on our boat when the other boat revved up to leave. And I turned around, and no one had ever covered my back like she had. I mean, I had had wonderful What's friends who covered too? But she had covered my back, and I just said, will you marry me? And she looked and said, no. <laughs> no, of course not. But still, you know, that was good. We did good. And so it took me a year and a half or so to convince her. What was the purpose of this trip? We were collecting plants okay. for Shama Pharmaceutical. They had given me pictures of some really horrible disorders to the skin. Um fungal infections, uh, bacterial infections, um, uh, herpes, but not eight herpes. These were the worst of the worst. Somebody who had 8,000 herpes all over their private parts and uh, their lips, I mean, the tongue. It was, and the, the quest was to go to the Cordenderos I knew, the different healers I knew on the river, and to ask them, show them the pictures, and when they really hit, like, yes! bring in so-and-so, and they bring in a boy and say, see, he has the same thing, but he's getting better. I know that plant. My job would be, good, make a list. Tomorrow, let's collect that plant. And we'd show them 150, they might hit on 100, but we'd only try to collect three or five from one Cordendero, because the Indians on the river, or the indigenous on the river, don't have an attention span like ours. They don't have enough food stored up to say, I'll give you three days, four days of work. You get one night, one morning, maybe a second morning to collect, and then you're gone. Because it's time for them to fish or hunt or go to the fields, take care of their kids, take care of their family. They just get up and walk away. They're tired of you. So we had a very limited time, but there were, very, there were eight or ten, right, places where we stopped and were able to collect. So it was material. primarily for you a humanitarian mission. No, I was getting paid by Shama Pharmaceutical. And if the trip went well, I would get paid more the next time. And if the trip went well, I would be, you know, one after another. In theory, I would then become a worker for them, and I would be able to spend my time on boats, traveling around the Amazon, collecting plants for 20 years. And you were paying Chapati, Yes. Not very much. And I wasn't getting paid very much. But the idea was, eat it the first time. I, no one ever paid me for my trips before. I mean, I sold some stories sometimes. That's my dog. That's and, and that initial trip, did it, um, what was the boom uh, of that trip? What did you come back with? We came back with about, I think we came back with 34 plants. I think 11 or 12 were unknown to Shaman Pharmaceutical, who thought they had already milked the whole region. And one was a new subspecies, which blew their minds that we had somehow come up with a plant they had never seen before. What was it? I, I don't remember the name right now. 
But what it did was, well, it cured one of their illnesses. We're going back 23 years now, so I'm not going to remember. It's super important stuff for history, though. Well, I'd have to look up the notes from that trip to find out what it did. You don't know? But it intrigued Shaman enough that the next trip they scheduled for four months later, this time with their botanist. Is it a coincidence that Shaman Pharmaceutical sounds like Shaman? No. It was very much on purpose. The point of the whole... Normally a pharmaceutical house, National Cancer Institute, would let anybody who's a graduate student go down to a part of the world and they would pay them $25 for any plant they collect. That's, you know, so if you collect 300 plants, you know, that would pay for your trip to go down somewhere during the course of doing your PhD, for instance. And you would have your name on 300 plants, you would have your, the first the beginning of a real herbarium collection in your name, and so that's what you'd work on, build on for the rest of your life as a field uh, botanist. In this case... Um, so you don't have the credit for having discovered and brought back that plant? No, no. They sent down their own biologist to say it's new to us, but we can't identify it because he doesn't have any fruit for it. And without the fruit, we can't... uh, For some reason, they couldn't identify whether it was a male or a female. And they knew it was new, but they weren't sure what the hell it was. Was Chapa's job, really was to teach me how to drive a boat, Timonella boat, to teach me how to move up and down the Amazon River, which is much more difficult than it seems, because mm-hmm. if you go to the right, you will be lost forever. Stay to the left. Stay to the left every chance you get. Stay to the left when you're going down the Amazon. Coming up, stay to the right, right? And Just no mistake. Get past the military bases. And get past the military bases. Bugs and, yeah, what dangers? There were, of course, animals. Well, here, when I say the military base wouldn't let you through if you didn't pay the piper and give them whatever they wanted, what I mean is two years after we opened our bar, seven years after our trip together, eight years after our trip together, some Japanese students put together a raft and decided to float from a town called Pukalpa 300 miles down to Iquitos, 300 miles or so, and then from there they were going to go out to the Atlantic Ocean. They were going to be the first balsa raft known that was going to do that. But no one had told them that you have to stop at a military base. Now, military bases only count when you're in international waters. The first one from Bucalpa to the Atlantic is at Pebas, where she went out the Cape. The balsa raft did not stop at Pebas to get a stamp. And so... The colonel in charge of Pavis at the time sent several canoes of his men out to hack them to death, which they did. They just simply stopped them and hacked them to pieces, buried pieces of their bodies, and shared their cameras and monies. These were medical students or scientists? No, they're just, just, no, they're just kids who happen to be yeah, tourists, but they happen to be going to college or just finished college. And they had some help from home. The Japanese television stations were meeting them at points to be able to say, how's it been so far? What is it like putting this together? But even this was probably 99. Let's put it into the history of the current phenomenon of all kinds of hundreds of thousands and thousands of people going down there and all kinds of white 
shaman or whatever, take leading people down there. Were you the first that you know of that was? No. And, and when did you first lead people down after this? After you learned the ropes through her? Well, I learned. I had been with Moises for seven years before I met. Yeah. So I had already walked to Brazil. Uh, walked to Brazil. I walked across the jungle. So I knew her. I was pretty, pretty astute and pretty capable out there. What I didn't know were the rivers. I never had my boat. That's where she came in. But I was walking to Brazil before her, and with Moisés, and I had stayed alone in the jungle many times for days on end without so you knew any the dangers help. of the jungle the insects the snakes the yeah to me that was normal stuff almost no one would go in where I went it was too much of a pain in the neck it was too physically demanding so it was the political and social no less political and social it was more I would insist to Moises Moises there must be a tribe living here so let's just take this new path uh-huh. which left us hacking at jungle like the movies looking for Indians who didn't live there indigenous who didn't live there mm-hmm. of course it dawned on me after 10 years of that that oh no one lives in the jungle they live on the rivers because that's where the water is duh but a white kid from Queens it took me a long time to get that through my head she could have told me that the first day Moises did tell me that the first day the I still didn't believe him. I thought you were going to hide the people I want to find the people that are hidden no one's hidden. They just follow the water there. That's where the people live. So why in, in the great big why were you, were you down there for so many years? Um, the great big why was that I have never gone to bed in Peru without having learned something new that day. And so every day to me is a brand new day and when I think, well, that's enough of Peru, I think I'll go back to Morocco. I think, you know, I love Morocco, but I didn't learn something new every day. So I better go back to Peru to keep learning. And having fallen in love, having married her, having babies with her, um, helping raise babies she had before me uh, into 30-year-old fine young men, um, it's really a second home for me. In the big scheme, you know, at that time, those days, when I had the imprimatur of the Museum of Natural History, Peter Gorman is going to collect things for our permanent hall. I called up airplane companies. I got free tickets for years. You know, I would say, would you like a copy of the letter thanking you to put in your stockholders report? Because you'll have that. All you got to do is give me a couple of free tickets. Yes. And you were the editor of High Times. Yes. And I was freelancing for Omni. And or Playboy. Or High Times get you in trouble down there sometimes? No, I never mentioned that. That's That did not come up. No, 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 no. You, I was smart enough from New York City, hip enough to know, hip enough to know, you don't mix and match. But you, know. you were filing stories. Not very many from Peru for High Times, no. No. Okay. So there, there were drug enforcement agents down. That was a whole different time. When I left High Times in '98, and we opened a bar, a restaurant, 
that was a whole very different time than the first 15 years of mine down there. Once you opened the bar restaurant, I was no longer associated with High Times. I was no longer anything. I had left the magazine. We opened the bar. We were going to live there for a couple of years. Our kids were born there. We thought it would be a good time to bring them back to school there, to remember their cousins, their grandma, and you know, grandpa, and all that stuff. And when we opened the bar, yes, we became we opened the bar in a very difficult, probably the toughest block in town. There was a port, so you had fifty or a hundred men who were moving staples up and down a mud slope, two waiting trucks which would be hired to carry that material to Almazanes, to the warehouses, or where it would be stored, whether it's cement or toilet seats, until it would be distributed somewhere else. So these 50 men are carrying ungodly weights. Maybe, you know, a guy weighs 140 pounds, and he's got to carry up a motor car that weighs 700 pounds on his back. And all he's got is one other guy to help spot it, where he's carrying a motorcycle down a muddy slope in the rain. One slip and his knee's gone. He's crippled forever. And it weighs 300 pounds and he weighs 110. This is what they did for a living. They were an angry, strong, badass bunch of people. The guys on the trucks were like picking up those motorcycles and passing them to their friends on the back of the truck. They were strong, angry, badass. And they smoked coca base that was unrefined and they drank Aguardiente cane liquor that was at the time when it was not so expensive almost always infused with kerosene or gasoline to give it a little extra bump so you were dealing with crazy people by the end of the day to get to our bar you had to pass through the gauntlet of a hundred of these people no one was willing to come into our bar except for a few crazy expats right? a few locals and the military and the DEA guys, and the guys who worked for, you know, spraying for Plant Columbia, you know, spraying the herbicides. So we had a pretty tough crowd there. We had a, we had a tough crowd, and I'd have my bong hitters, High Times t-shirt there from playing softball with High Times, the bong hitters. Sometimes there'd be a sign-up that said, I am a reporter, everything you say will be recorded and published. I did not find, as an editor executive editor, editor-in-chief of High Times, a huge hassle from the U.S. government. Um, once in a while, Chep would call me and say, there are men with suits at the door, they want to come in, and they're saying it'll only take a minute, and I would say, don't let them in, that's just FBI. Maybe I'd written a story about something that I shouldn't have known about. But you see, when we had the bar... You get a 28 or a 30 year old guy, even if he's the toughest, and please, military American, don't come down to me for this. Even the toughest soldier, a man who could beat me to death with my own limbs if he wanted to, if he's been away from home for some months, if he's in Peru and if he accidentally gets drunk, he's allowed to start sharing things that he shouldn't share. And he's going to share them with a bartender. And he's going to forget the bartender is recording his conversation. Even if the bartender said, I'm turning the tape recorder on, because what you're telling me is going to be illegal. I will have to publish this in the new site, narconews.com, run by Al Giordano in Mexico. And it's going to appear on that site in 24 hours. And then they're going to kill the operation. 
I don't care. I just want to tell you, I really don't like killing children so much. I just, I didn't know. I, I thought it was grown man, and I shot, and I didn't realize. Yeah, get it off your chest. Mama print that. And Algina Down Sight was getting quite a lot of attention at the time. Probably still does, but it was so new. It was the first real anti-drug war from Central and South America information out there that it was getting whatever inf- whatever interest there was, he got it all. <coughs> and so, in that case, I had some people who really didn't like me. And I knew from there I was getting flack from the U.S. government sometimes. And I'd get some warnings. I don't know that the government put out the warnings, but, you know, I don't know if they were official or it was just some guy who didn't like me who said, but at our bar, the people who came to the bar, they were all like, look, we're not allowed to come to your bar, we're off limits, but they trained me for a half million dollars. What are they going to do, fire me because I like your hamburgers? And so those guys came anyway, even though we were off limits. And they told us stuff, and we got credit for having two or three operations shut down before they ever came off. That was about cocaine, right? It was generally, well, no, it also included the FARC rebels when the FARC, the FARC Colombia's revolutionaries had been given a space in Colombia, an area, a state or two, where as long as they stayed inside, the military would not come in to try to get them. If they came outside, they were free, but they were promised, well, during the time they were given that state, the U.S. military was training, I think it was two or three brigades of jungle specialists who would be ready when the government took away the protected area to come on down and force them into the Putumayo River where a team of Americans, former, I mean freelancers, but former military guys, would be waiting to pick them off as they arrived on the river. That, my story about that, talking about when it was going to happen, that the boats had been brought in, 12 boats had been brought in, that there were 14 men, that it was a SEAL unit of former SEALs who were no longer officially with the U.S. government. They were like CIA contractors. That got shut down. It never happened. The U.S. government was really, really upset with me for that. I thought I was saving hundreds of innocent women and children's lives. Well, you did, right? I think so. On the other hand, the Colombian government and the U.S. government would have been real proud and they would have minimized those deaths and talked about the running FARC. The FARC are on the run and our people took thousands into custody or hundreds into custody and thousands you know, are now going to jail at the end of the revolution. American business can go back to work in Colombia without worrying about the revolutionaries. So American business would have loved it if that had gone down. But no one understood what was really going to happen. The people fleeing the pincher movement from the U.S. government were going to include those wives and children. They were going to end up, just like when the guy cried and said, I thought it was a grown-up, and they didn't realize I was killing a kid. They were going to end up in the crosshairs. Whoever came out was going to stood the chance of, of, of getting hit with a stray bullet or with a bullet intention until the soldier realized, or the ex-soldier realized, the former soldier realized, my goodness, I didn't mean, I didn't know it was a woman. I, I just saw the move, movement. It was a mirror in her hand. It wasn't a gun. 
you know, but I saw the glint of light, bang, the pregnant woman. So yeah, I think I did a good job. Did anybody from the American government or the Peruvian government ever threaten or say, <coughs> you know, you should get out of here, or even private interests? Yeah. A lot. But when I was taught to smuggle, I did several stories about smuggling prior times. The smugglers always made it clear you smuggle in plain sight. If you hide it, it will be found. Just walk through. When they say, what's in the box? Just say, oh, I've got dope in the box. Ah, yeah, sure, get out of here. If you say, I don't have dope in the box, they're going to look in that box, they're going to find your dope, and you're going to jail. If you wrote, people would tell me, you better write under a fake name. They won't know it's you. I thought, if I write under a fake name, then they can kill me, and no one even knows why I died. If I write under my real name, and if they know where to find me because I've got a bar, then they might say, he's just such a jerk. And we can leave him alone. Because he's not doing anything wrong. He's telling everybody he's a reporter. He's not cheating anybody. He's not sneaking. He's. He, Did they try to recruit you? Mm-mm. Nobody ever tried no, to recruit no. you? No. No. And the threats were pretty clear, but I don't know where they came from. You know, if somebody comes in and says, you know, you could be dead this week. I don't know if that's a real threat or not. Am I a little scared when I left the bar that night at midnight and I'm alone? Yeah. Did I double check? Did I try to keep one of my clients in there to say, you walk out first, you walk out first, just in case there's going to be a snipe, right? Mm-hmm. Of course you're scared to death. I have a big question. Uh, not exactly sure how to ask it, but um, what is Peter Gorman's relationship to fear? He doesn't fear the things that, that I fear, snakes and spiders and guys with machetes and, uh, you know. I, I'm probably the most fearful human you ever saw. I'm, I'm racked with fear at all times. Um, I'm fearful that I'm not mad enough. I'm fearful that she doesn't think I'm cute anymore. I'm fearful that a rat is in the house and I have to call my sons. Mice, I'm not so bad about rats. Kill. I have to call my sons and say, you have to come here now because I'm going to have to commit suicide if this rat stays in the house and the darn cats are not chasing it. They think it's cute. And I, so I'm, I, you know, but, but, uh, I like to act like I'm not particularly cheerful. Bacteria, you don't care about. There's not, uh, what can I do about it? Really? If any negativity is going to have to happen, it has to happen to me. Right. And the universe obliges. And so I've had my stomach explode, intestines explode. I've had this, I had the shishube bite, I've had the malaria, I've had... Several times. Yeah. I mean, a host of things that most people really wouldn't want, and I actually don't want. But I'm really glad that I had them, but now... What about spider? Yeah, and the spider bite that made holes in my leg. I mean, the bites down here but it started opening up holes everywhere. Huge holes. Till, and they were huge at the time to let the poison out because it was going to be septic. It was septic. Most people, after the first bite, you know, that would be it. You know. uh, so... I, I, I... You know, those things weren't going to make me quit. Right. No. My problem and where I really screwed up and screwed up the marriage and screwed up 
a bunch was that there have been periods when I simply drink too damn much and I think I'm funny and cute and the people around me, the people that love me think you're worrisome, a pain in the ass and you are ruining everything and I think I'm just being the funniest, cutest guy in the world and she doesn't and she's right so you asked me earlier and I never answered the question what drugs did I do at the bar typically I have a couple of cups of coffee every day I mix decaf, real good quality decaf, half and half with caffeinated, and it's usually limited to two cups a day, two and a half. Um, I'll eat ice cream a couple of times a week if I have the chance. If I don't, maybe at least once a month I'll treat myself to ice cream or a couple of M&Ms or some kind of candy. Um, I drink wine, generally two bottles a day or a bottle and a half a day, um, which... I don't particularly think is bad these days, but in the past, if it was 35, 45 beers in a day, you know, that was a lot, you know, and when I had the bar, if I started at 7 in the morning, you know, we served liters, half, I mean, three-quarter liters of beer, at the end of the day, if it was 33 quarter liters of beer, you were really drunk, and you were an ass, and you were a jerk, and you were yelling at the people you loved. An alcoholic. Yeah. Did you think of yourself? No, I, I... I had already quit for 15 years at one stage. I quit for a few years at another stage. When it's time to clean up the act, it's time to clean up the act. You know, it's just that you often don't see that it's time to clean up the act for the year that you're bad. The rest of the time, you can say, well, I'm pretty good. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm seeing what I'm doing and I'm controlling it. Um, Did you use ayahuasca ever to try to get off booze? No, I never saw a reason to try to get off booze. I happen to like red wine. I don't think it's a big deal. Would I take another drink of gin? I haven't had gin in t- since when? 97 or something when we moved to Peru. I never had a gin. Okay. Um, yeah, tell us about your conversation with Albert Hoffman. I've, I've heard the tape. It's hilarious. Uh, <coughs> most of the people on Psychedelic Salon have heard it. So just give us your version. Well, I decided to do a 50-year anniversary of LSD. <coughs> And in my version, vision for High Times, that meant I'm going to use Albert Hoffman as a central interview, and I'm going to have somebody write the story of LSD, <coughs> but I will interview 15 or 20 people who were instrumental in getting the word out about LSD, to write, or, or interview them, to be able to pull three or 400 words, a column or two, people like Lear and Ginsberg and... Um, Beresford and a host a host of people, Kate Keezy and Ken Babs what I would what it was like for them when LSD hit and then Hoffman's the centerpiece (coughs) so I tried to reach Mr. Hoffman several times and I I didn't get him and I finally got him one night and (coughs) I'm used to as a reporter when I get the subject, I explain who I want, who I am, what it is I want, and then I try to say, I really only need ten minutes of your time. Give me ten minutes. I'm lying. I want three hours. But if I can get them interested in the ten minutes, they'll forget dinner and they'll let me do my thing. So that's what I wanted with Mr. Hoffman. And Albert instead began with, well, how much do you pay me? 
here in the United States, you can't pay someone for an interview, or it's not an interview. You know, live TV, you don't pay for. Lady on the street, you just saw a dog get run over. What happened? If she charges money, she'll make up whatever story you want. So, of course, you can't pay her. It's against the rules of journalism. In Europe, people get paid for their time. So, what ensued when I reached Albert Hoffman and my tape was running was an argument about how much money am I making for the story and how much will I give him for the story and me trying to explain I can't pay him anything and him saying what you're getting paid what am I getting paid why you're important and I'm not but I'm the subject so what's going on here and in the middle of that there was a beep on my phone and there was another phone call and I thought about it for a moment and then I asked Mr. Hoffman Albert would you, would you mind holding on a minute I'll get rid of this person and I clicked to the other line never really occurring to me that he would hang up and uh, on the other line hello Peter this is Laura Laura Huxley yeah so good to hear from you Laura I, I, Laura Huxley this is Huxley's wife this is the doors of perceptions muse this is it and uh, I said, Laura, I, I can't talk now. I'm on the phone with Albert Hoffman. Oh, dear Albert, dear Albert, it's on the line. Please tell dear Albert, I love him so much. He is just someone I love. Tell him Laura says hello and sends him a lot of love and maybe a hug, whatever it was. So I said, great, I'll call you back when I finish with Hoffman. Click. Albert, I'm waiting on the phone for you. And you're taking other phone That was Laura. Laura? Yes, yes, yes. That was, uh, uh, sorry, that was Laura Huxley. Laura! How is Laura doing? And he went into a two-minute rapture, I think, about Laura Huxley, and what a beautiful woman she was, and made him kind of forget about the money thing. So in the end, I said, I'll give you half the money I'm making. I make 300 for the story, I'll give you 150 or something like that. I'm sure I never paid him. I knew I was lying at the time. I hope my fingers are crossed. I had kids at the time. I didn't have, couldn't pay him half my money. So, uh, and then he gave me two hours of a wonderful, wonderful interview. But it was there was that moment in the beginning where is he going to be back on the line when I click? And Laura Huxley saves the day. Um, what do you think was your main thing you wanted to get from Hoffman? Is there anything maybe that he had never addressed that, that you were able to um, By the 50th anniversary of LSD, he'd pretty much addressed everything he could. But he hadn't told me. And every time someone tells a story, there's a slightly different version. They, re they emphasize a point or they de-emphasize another point. And so I basically wanted the story of how did you stumble onto this? Just what everyone else wanted. How did you stumble onto it when you did stumble onto it and you went home and it was on your fingers and you realized the whole world was shape-shifting in front of you on a bicycle ride home in Basel, what was that like? And I knew he told the story, but I knew my voice was a fresh voice. He would tell the same story with a fresh attitude. And he told a wonderful version of it to me just wonderful and of course once I had Hoffman in the can then 
everyone else, everyone else had to say, well, I'm included, you've already got Hoffman, well, I was going to be too busy, but now I'm thrilled with, you know, to be part of this. And that was vital to me, and it made one of the best issues Hot Times ever had. Did he talk about his micro-dosing that he did uh, later in life? Do you know about that? A little bit. He he talked about some things that I thought... He talked about Leary coming there. And, what did he think of Leary? Oh, he thought Leary was an asshole. Or an ass. Uh, I shouldn't add to it. He thought he was kind of an ass because he was way too public and he knew he was going to get in trouble for being public and then he resented being in trouble once he was public and Hoffman thought you know that he, he told me at least at that moment that he thought Leary was too far out on the limb to complain about being in trouble being out on the limb um, that he brought it on himself yeah. yeah but he also told me that uh, oh yo 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 Ayahuasca Analogs the author of Ayahuasca Analogs um, a younger fellow uh, Hoffman told a couple of stories that night about spending time with Schultes and Wasson and going to Mexico and uh, spending time with a younger author the fellow who wrote uh, uh, Ayahuasca Analogs did Hoffman take ayahuasca? No. But he talked about eating magic mushrooms and watching the fellow who wrote Ayahuasca Analogs, watching his wife dance under the moonlight and describing being 90 years old and saying, I was so young when I watched her dance and Schultes next to me and was in the other side. Who would guess we are the fathers of the whole movement. We were not trying to be. We were scientists. And there she was dancing on the moonlight. And there we were, 20 years old again. I mean, he was bringing tears to your eyes, listening to him from 4,000 miles, 5,000 miles away, describing being in Mexico with the other two and some other yeah. Famous people. Was Hoffman afraid of ayahuasca? It's, I don't think he was a drug user or a medicine user. He was a scientist. He accidentally yeah. wound up with the LSD and he tried it subsequently a few more times um, to see if he could replicate the experience. And after that, I don't believe he used it ever again. I'm told said, that in, in later life he was taking it every day, but in micro. Then he might have been. He yeah. might have been. I, he did not tell me that. Yeah. Um, uh, the other people that you talked to during that for that issue, what's who else? Well, I mean, uh, to me, the the favorite one. I'd already spoken to Alan Ginsberg several times. You have a good Alan Ginsberg story. Uh, Alan Ginsberg was a pain in the butt. He. Everything he said was poetry, and he hated to be edited. So he would make it real clear, really clear at the beginning of it too. Well, I talk, I speak, poetry comes. 
evoke soul-searing. If you edit, I will have you killed. I need to see the tape, the text, and the magazine. Side, side. Side by side, side to side, side beside and side beside. I speak poetry, revelation. It was like, you big bopper. Not everything you speak is poetry. You don't even make sense half the time. But he couldn't say this to Allen Ginsberg. So you had to swear to him always. And maybe I did ten interviews with him over the years. I will give you the tape unedited. I will give you transcription unedited. And your employees will look at it and double check. And then I'll show you the magazine format layout. And of course I never did. I had to edit the hell out of him just to make it make sense. He didn't recognize that, but I was a very good editor. So, so you never got letters of complaint back from him? No, he always thought, like, finally, a writer who knows. And it was like, good, good, as long as you know. I've got several writers, writers who worked for me, not Ginsburg never worked for me, but writers who think every word they write is golden. And your job as editor of that story is to make such slender cuts, even if you're cutting half the story, that they don't notice and they come back to you and say wow glad you didn't cut anything I'd have been really pissed off and you're thinking you gave me 7,000 words I published 3,000 and you're not noticing yeah there were 4,000 words that were no good and didn't add anything so and that counts you know I love being a good editor um, but I to me one of the favorites was Ken Kesey um, because he was a hero from the first time I read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, from the time I heard about the bus, when I was still, you know, an 18-year-old kid or something, and missed all that, because I wasn't quite old enough to be one of the real hippies. It was another one of those moments, like with Dave Foreman, where, you know, you ask for inspiration, and trying to reach Ken Kesey, I'd already, Wavy Gravy had given me his uh, uh, private phone number, which was Fish Lips with the right area code and uh, I had called fish lips a hundred times and got no response and then one day I was watching TV I knew I had to have him in this and no one would give me like another phone his wife would either pick up the phone or no one would pick up the phone and I was at home and I realized I'm watching an Oregon football game Saturday afternoon I said Ken Kesey went to Oregon he lives in Oregon. He must be watching this game. So I waited, and the moment halftime hit, I dialed blah, 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 fish lips, and the phone got picked up, and I said, you got nine minutes, you're not doing anything, I need nine minutes of your time to talk to you about LSD. You son of a bitch. When LSD hit, it dripped down from the sky like rain on, like manna raining on heaven. And he just went into this most fantastic, beautiful poetry prose poetry and about seven minutes into it he said now I have two minutes to get a goddamn beer click <laughs> so I had taken almost his whole halftime later I met him and we had a good time remembering that story but uh, it was one of those you know football's been very very good to me um, let's talk about Timothy Leary Timothy Leary and I spoke together at uh, I'd spoken to him several times he was always a very generous man with his time um 
anything I wanted and he had no reason to be this nice but anything I wanted he gave me the time of day even when he was older and dying when he was definitely dying we ended up speaking at a conference together and I forget what the name of it was but I decided I'm going to go into his the rest of us shared like a small green room you know where people go before a show or before a conference Timothy had his own room so I went to Leary's room and there was someone there his partner on stage that night and they were talking about AIDS and they were talking about diseases and about death and um, I sat down and told him who I was and he remembered like you know I don't remember a whole lot now because he was very ill and it's like but you call me a lot from high times you know and I keep talking to you and nice to meet you and just very very generous very educated very elegant man I mean he might have seemed out of line with Harvard 25 years earlier but he was still kind of that east coast he carried himself like an east coast intelligent wonderful person who was generous with his time with his ideas I mean I I, I thought the world of him in person I didn't think the world of him reading a lot of his material I didn't think he was a good writer I thought he was a jerk when I was growing up why? because he kept talking out loud about things that were just going to get people in trouble and I didn't think you should talk out loud about things that are going to get people in trouble uh, because he might get away with it because he was a professor at Harvard but all the kids were going to follow his thing and going to end up in jail so you kind of side with Ados Huxley you know there's a chapter in Timothy's autobiography where he talks about the two kind of men on his shoulder Huxley saying this has been done for 3,000 years it's got to be secret if it gets out to the public that's when the cops you know it's gone on forever it's for the elite and, and then Ginsburg saying no everybody needs to turn on and it's going to stop the Vietnam War and, and Timothy had to choose between those two characters yeah. you know like Pinocchio had the two characters on either side yeah. of his head that's the way I see it and he ended up going with Ginsburg which ended up causing his life to be the way it was, you yeah. know, constantly pursued by the government. Yeah. So you more or less side with Huxley on that philosophical question. At that early on, I did. Well, in my experience, when I heard about Leary, you know, I didn't necessarily like what I heard. You know, I mean, I was raised by a Republican, uh, Eisenhower Republican, but it was still Republican. Um, and it took a while for me to get my own opinions going and uh, my dad you know a good Lutheran would have looked at somebody like Leary as a jerk just he's an idiot he talks too much he talks too loud he wants to be the center of attention and anyone who does those three things is an idiot no matter what they do and it really wasn't until I began to talk with him in interviews that I realized how generous he was and in that what a nice human being he was and that he really didn't like anyone having gone to jail for listening to him, that he really regretted that stuff and that he would have phrased it differently if he was smarter, but he recognized that he wasn't smart enough to do that and so uh, he really loved Ramdas, his partner in crime at Harvard but that he, at the time, didn't know how to tone anything down. And so 
he regretted not having a muzzle or, or a filter to filter out some of what he said. He was pretty clear about that. He wasn't unhappy that he'd said it. He wished he'd have said it in a way that was less offensive. But he also recognized that if he'd said it in a less offensive way, no one would have heard it. So he was still kind of caught, knowing he had done a great thing, knowing the price he'd paid, but knowing that other people had paid a price too. And I, that's what I thought made him such a good human, that he got it. He, you don't always get it right the first time. He got it. Um, what about his work as a researcher? I'm not a scientist, so it's not fair for me to talk. I mean, I, don't, I really don't know how to weigh in. I know his work with virtual reality ha- is coming true. You know, um, when you put on some of the new virtual reality, you really are in the reality, and dinosaurs are eating you, and it's really horrible to get eaten by dinosaurs. Um, and that's going to get worse and worse as this stuff gets better and better. But he was pushing this you know, 30 years ago. And he was right. Uh, He was right about mushrooms. He was uh, right about so many things. And then he was still very human and very flawed. And we all are. And so I'm not, nothing to hold against the guy. I think the guy's life work stands for itself, you know, Uh, and and stands by itself. And it certainly doesn't need me to critique him. What, as a human, in those Ten times we interacted, and those two or three times we physically met, I thought he was great. In the end, I ended up putting out a special issue of Timothy Leary after he died, and I could not resist doing that. So I, my respect was immense, even though I didn't agree with him early on. Terrence McKenna. Terrence McKenna was a big shot long before I met him. And he was wonderful, arrogant Irish imp. And uh, I remember calling him once. We'd spoken 10 times, 20 times. And I called him once and said, Well, I really hate to do this, but I'm probably going to use you for a centerfold interview for high times. And his response shocked me with a, Peter, wow, I really don't think you need to, you don't need to uh, pimp for me out there. And I said, Pimp for you? I was going to ask you questions everybody's been afraid to ask for the last 20 years because you're full of shit on so many levels that no matter how much good you do you're so wrong your timeline is off by 100,000 years it doesn't make any sense it's brutal well Peter if you put it that way maybe an interview is in order after all and we so we liked each other he he liked the challenge you threw down the gauntlet. And he a little bit. It up. And his brother, Dennis, who really is something of a friend, more, I knew Dennis, I know Dennis much more than I ever knew Terrence. Dennis would always say, Terrence's good ideas come from me. And he was a charmer who was an idiot. That's how Dennis thinks of Terrence. And, or that's what he'll say sometimes. It just, I don't know, I thought Terrence was great. When he would start talking, I swear, that guy kissed the Blarney stuff. You you couldn't stop. It didn't matter if bells were going off saying, that's inconsistent with that. That doesn't work with that. You just said two things that are opposite. You want to raise your hand and say, can I correct you, teacher? But your hand won't move because he was so spellbinding. And he just sat there. 
well, let's talk about where the human brain comes from and speech comes from. And without moving, he had 300 people, like, mesmerized, like rats looking at a snake. It doesn't matter if the rat could just walk away. It can't. It's going to eventually end up in a damn snake's mouth. It can't help itself. And then, one of my greatest joys, the day I knew I made it. Now, tell me the author of Eating Cowgirls Get the Blues. Tom Robbins. <clears throat> I'm at home before I met Chepa, and I'm living alone on East 90th Street, and I get a phone call, and the phone call says, hello, this is Tom Robbins. I hope I'm not bothering you. I said, Tom Robbins? I, the author, Tom Robbins, I've written a couple of books. Oh, Tom Robbins! Jesus! Yeah, cool. Are you calling me? What for? He said, I hope you don't mind. Terrence gave me your number. Hold on. And before he said one more word, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Terrence gave Tom Robbins my number. And I said, what do you want? He said, it turns out you're the one who knows everything about this frog. And I'm writing a book called Half Asleep in Frog's Pajamas. And I need to talk to you about the frog because I don't know anything about it. Of course, it turned out he was not talking about my frog, Sapo, now known often as Cambo. My new book is about that. But he was talking about the Bufotainen. He was talking about the cane toads. And so, in the end, I didn't have a ton of information to give him. You know, so the phone call didn't work. But the fact that Terrence McKenna had me in his phone book to pass on to Tim Rob, Tom Robbins to call me was made me feel like, yes, I really am a writer. Somebody knows me. And that was just like one of the highlights of my writing career. Let's go into Sapo, since the subject came up. Sapo is a medicine that is the protective goop, sweat, uh, that comes off a frog called the Phylomedusa bicolor. Here in aquariums in the States, it's called the giant waxy monkey frog. It's sold in aquariums, and it has no poisons. In the jungle, when it's frightened, it gives off a thin layer of sudor, sweat, um, which, since its primary predator are tree constrictors, snakes, the frog will enter a snake's mouth, get frightened, put that this stuff off, the snake will freeze, and the frog's got a moment to walk back out of the snake's mouth and get away. Tell it from your story, right, so, how you first heard about it, and then how you... So, okay, that's what it is. I first heard about it. I was out with the Matzes, my Aruna, on the Rio Galvez, and I was out of my friend, a man who became my friend, Pablo's house. Pablo had four wives. He was the headman of a small camp. Him and his brother Antonio lived there. And Alberto lived there. And Alberto had two wives. Pablo had four. And they were the two adults in the camp. Lots and lots of children around of all sorts of different ages. And What year? 1986. Six, 1986, early on. And I was on that trip with my brother-in-law, Steve Flores, who was acting as photographer for things. And it was a rainy day. And we had done a substance called Nunu the night before, uh, or two days earlier. A snuff, tobacco, and macambo from a, a, a variation of chocolate. Uh, 
from the inner bark of a tree that produces chocolate, uh, that was a fantastic medicine, and, and we had done a great deal of good hunting based on what we learned from the medicine. So now it was a rainy day, and Alberto offered to take Steve, my brother-in-law, out to a lake where there were lots of black caiman, lots of really ferocious caiman, crocodilians. Um, and Steve jumped at the chance, like, yes, yes, let's go out there. And I said, I've already been around black caiman, they're way too aggressive, I'm not really happy with that, so I'm stay here. And what I thought I would do is I'd ask Pablo, I'd point to different things in the hut, his number one wife's hut, Mashu, and say, what is that? What is that? What's this little low stool you sit on? What's that pot? What do you call the fire? What do you call... So I would make a little dictionary. And I already knew that above the fire, people in the river often keep medicines they've collected or seeds they've collected for next year's planting. So above the fire, cockroaches, and there's lots of them out there, won't be able to get at them, and they won't rot with the constant change in humidity where it's raining and then it's dry and raining and dry, so they won't get the fungal growth. So you keep things in bags or in little glass jars above a fire to keep them well, far enough above the fire so they're not hot, but they're not, you know, they're not getting moist. And when I got to this particular bag, and I thought, okay, he's going to tell me it's a medicine, what kind? He suddenly, instead of giving the name, he pulls it down, opens it up, and there's a thin stick in this little kind of a plastic bag, like a waxy bag of some sort. A little thin stick, and he goes, Petro, sapo, sapo. You think it's sapo? I don't know what the word sapo means. All right? And uh, for some reason, he thought, I wanted to do this. When I asked him what the name of the chair was or what a mother was, and he goes, Tita. He knew I didn't want a mother. I just wanted to know, how do you call a mother? But in this case, he decided I needed to do this stuff, and I didn't know there was anything to do. So, first he spits on the stick, and he starts moistening up what looks like dried lacquer or dried varnish on the stick, and he moistens it into a small paste. He says, offering it to me. Okay, I don't know what the heck this is. And then he reaches into the fire, he reaches up to a crossbeam, and he's got some vine on it, there's vine up here like it, Tamashi, and he snaps off a little piece of it, thrusts it in the fire, I still don't know what we're, what's going on and what we're doing, he takes it out, blows on it, and then in a split second, grabs my arm, holds it, totally rock steady, didn't give me any opportunity, I tried to pull it away, this little 120 pounder was stronger than I was, I couldn't move that arm, he takes that little stick and he burns me two or three times on the inside, twice on the inside of my forearm. And he scrapes away the burned skin and he takes the goop that he made from the stick that looked like lacquer and puts it on there and the whole time he keeps saying over and over, And I looked to Moises, my fantastic guide who brought me out there and said, okay, we did the new-new, so I trust this medicine won't kill me, that medicine didn't kill me. What is this stuff? And what's going to happen? And Moises looks at me and says, I never saw this before. And ten seconds after I did it, I started... He was your uh, shaman. Moises was not my shaman. Ah. Moises was Sorry. my jungle survival teacher. 
and we would do the trips walking, looking for Indian tribes in the middle of the jungle. And he, he would take money for it, telling me we're not going to find anyone. But we kept crisscrossing back and forth. So we did a lot of work and walking together. But at the Matzes, he, when I was given this substance, you know, 15 seconds, 20 seconds into it, my heart began to speed up. I began to sweat my forehead. I began to feel like clammy all over. And after a couple of minutes, I kind of got, was down hands and knees. And a couple of minutes later, my heart was beating so fast. My pulse was so fast. I was sweating so profusely. I really, I, I was poisoned. And then I really couldn't move much. I could moan, but I couldn't move much. And Pablo's kids are standing around me kind of kicking me like is the animal dead yet <laughs> you know I mean, that's what it felt like and that's what it seemed like it was like I can't respond but they're kicking me I'm dead I'm, they think I'm already dead I'm not dead I'm going to scream I'm not dead but I couldn't say anything I was in the throes of this horrific horrible medicine that was going to just burn me up from going so fast at some point I must have blacked out because when I woke up I was in the hut that Steve and I had been given to use it was unwalled, so it had a small roof, a couple of hanging mosquito nets, and, and with uh, hammocks inside. And I stood up and like, how did I get here? I'm not dead. And then I heard voices. I was like, what the heck? Who's here? Turned around, there was no one there. Across the entire camp, Mashu and one of the other wives were talking in normal voices, it sounded like they were shouting in my ears. And then I looked up, I heard some noise in the tree, I looked up, and I saw the slightest movement of leaves that I normally wouldn't have seen. And then I suddenly, I'm looking right through them, I'm seeing a group of monkeys, a troop of monkeys walking through. I never would have seen, my eyes, I could see the serrated edges of the leaves. I haven't got this eyesight. And I stretched, and when I stretched, it felt like 30 new muscles popped. I'm strong, I see, I hear. What is this? And, of course, what it turned out to be was that this medicine, Sapo, now called Cambo, what I had done was become one of the first, but certainly the first to publish the use of Sapo frog sweat. Um, sapo actually means toad. In Spanish, the Matzes Indians didn't have a great grasp of Spanish at the time, so all amphibians were called sapos. In real life, they, each one had a name, so some people say, well, the Matzes were dumb if they didn't know the difference between sapo and rana. That's pretty distinct. I mean, you know, it's pretty insignificant when you're learning a new language. What was significant was that they called it Dauquiet, which is the only frog in the jungle, or that they called Dauquiet was that particular one, because each frog has its own name. And so, they weren't dumb, they just didn't speak the Spanish language. The medicine I had taken when I wrote about it became, and when it was published in, I guess, Omni and, and several other magazines within a year, became the first public known comments, known Somebody might find an old book somewhere, but they haven't yet. About the use of sapo mm, as a medicine. But what was significant about it was there was a, a scientist in Italy, Vittorio Sparmer, who had twice made the finals 
for a Nobel Prize in medicine. He was a pharmacologist, and he was the fellow who isolated serotonin. So he was a big shot. Uh, and he thought he finally was going to win the Nobel with this. He had studied the amphibian skin of this particular frog, and he knew that it had proteins that were dozens of proteins that were powerful, more powerful than similar proteins in the human body. But there was no history of human use, so he couldn't test whether those proteins would kill someone or not. So when I went back to the museum and gave them the paper on that, and they would send things like those papers, like they sent the leaves that I badly collected to the leaf people, they sent the paper to the frog guy. Well, here's a story about a frog that you've been working on. I mean, the museum was very good at disseminating the material. And he wrote back and said, you've used this? Do you have it? Can you get me some? Can you get me the frog? And so that gave me a few more trips to go down there until I could accomplish all that. And it turned out to be the most bioactive substance that had been found to date. And bioactive, and I'm not a scientist, so forgive me if I phrase it weakly, essentially means a substance that interacts with the human body as if the human body made it. In other words, no overdosing, no addiction potential, the same way that you have uh, when you work out your muscles and then your muscles need a break, your body releases some is it lactate acid to tell your body to slow down a little bit and or it first releases some painkiller endorphins and you know that gives your body the strength to go on and when your endorphins are pushing too much the acid comes out to say stop you're about to ruin those muscles but none of that becomes addictive physically and none of that hurts your body it's your body everything's working lock and key with a receptor site and so this medicine was a real breakthrough for the scientific community to realize we can begin working with amphibian skins with humans. There's a history of use now that Gorman published this story. Tell us about your book. Oh, let's pause here. Okay. That's all right. No, it, it, because we, uh, this is not important. The, uh, right, podcast, as long as you know, podcast is important. In the last couple of years, I started to write some books, put together old stories, put together old trip notes, and uh, I guess in 2010, I wrote and self-published the book, Ayahuasca in My Blood, 25 Years of Amazon Dreaming, about my work with ayahuasca over the years. And earlier this year, 2015, I published a book called Sapo in My Soul, The Matzez Frog Medicine. Um, and that book deals with how I first stumbled on it with Pablo in the village, how I watched them use it, the different ways it was used medicinally. A child's got the gripe. The gripe to you and me is a bad cold. To an indigenous person in Peru, it's liable to kill them because they don't have protection for it. So a small dose of sapo, even on a child, can break a sweat and clear that right up. I'm not recommending parents buy sticks of sapo and give it to their small children. Okay, This is how I saw the Matzez use it jungle, by allowing them to, by pushing them to sweat so much, it helped eliminate their human odor, which allowed them to hunt a little closer to animals without shotguns, where you really need to get up close and you're going to like hit a boar on the head with a stick. If the animal could smell you, it's going to not let you do that. So by pushing you to sweat, and then if you bathe in the river and don't eat anything, you know, you're, 
if you need a long hike, this will stave off your hunger and thirst. It will allow an adrenal drip to... It turns on an adrenal drip that will last for a few days, allowing you to hike a long time, take a rest for 10 minutes, be refreshed, and go again, rather than say you really need eight hours to sleep. You told me once it detoxes all the organs of the body at the same time. It Right, and that's the cleansing that allows you to not smell like a human. We've learned with the proteins that have been discovered in this that it is the most amazing detox for a human body. It's a vaso, one of the proteins, an enormous vasodilator. So you take these tight little pipes that are encrusted with garbage that we put in our lives, like my cigarettes, and you stretch them open, and that stuff begins to crack, all that bad stuff, because you know the pipes open again, and then it gets washed out. And in the space of 15 minutes, where you're having the acute intoxication feeling of it, you really hate Peter Gorman, and you want to die. I can attest to this, okay. ladies and gentlemen. And two hours later, you're totally in love with Peter Gorman because you see a little better, you hear a little better, you have a better blood flow through your system, your liver, your kidneys. If your heart had palpitations, one or two doses is liable to clean those valves so that the heart now opens, you know, the valves open and close properly instead of all gummed up with junk that you put in your body and that you've accumulated over the years. What about hypertension or uh, uh, since it increases heart uh, beat, right, or heart, uh, raises your heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, what if you already have... Uh, because the proteins at work that are raising the heartbeat are bioactive, when your body has had enough, your body shuts them down. Because, for instance, MDMA can be dangerous to someone who has uh, uh, hypertension, right? So can, you know, ayahuasca, so can several things. But not sapo. Sapo is bioactive. The proteins are bioactive, and that is what sets it apart as a medicine and sets it apart as a potential uh, uh, for potential use in humans with new medicines. Is there no contraindications that you know of? Like ayahuasca is contraindicated for us. The only time I was not served sapo was when my leg was full gangrene with the flesh-eating bacteria and it was looked like I had a big green and yellow helmet on my leg that sounded like a drum when you hit it, bang, bang, bang. It was that hard and solid. And Pepe, a Matzah's friend of mine, said no. And I asked why, and a friend of mine, Juan, speaks dialect, so... Bevy basically explained in shorthand, you have poison in your system. If we clean the poison out of your system, we're going to be putting that poison all through your system. So you might have a bad effect. So get rid of that poison before we start spreading poison. You know, To clean you up and send stuff out your kidney is one thing, but to put... Might be too much to my, through your I might affect my... He thought I might, it might affect my kidney. But you've never seen... You've, administered it to a lot of people. It's legal, right? Oh, it's... Uh, for what it's, it's worth, it's under the radar. It's, it's not under illegal. the radar. It's just simply not in right. focus. And, and you've never heard or seen of any... No. There are some people who have very difficult time with it, but as a rule, that's 15 minutes or... For some they people, it's 30 they're minutes. they're dying, but they're not. No. Right. They're actually right. just that's getting better. I, so. But... 
if you release tons of poison through your system to be eliminated, for the moments that poison is in your system running through your bloodstream, you're being poisoned. Yeah. So, yeah, you damn well feel like you're dying. Do you think it could lead to a stroke? I don't know. If yeah. you told me someone... I mean, there are people that I wouldn't serve it to. Right. Let people say, I'm Superman, give me... Uh, you know, ten quarter ounce, you know, quarter inch hits. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think it'll hurt you, but it's strong medicine. It's very powerful stuff. Lorenzo wanted me to cover a couple of things, and then I have one question. So, uh, just like five more minutes of your time. Um, he wanted me to ask you about the cannabis cup in Amsterdam. Is that something that you went to? Uh, Steve Hager. My editor at High Times Magazine ran into uh, Ben Dronkers. Ben Dronkers was a former seaman who had collected cannabis seeds from all over the world when he was a seaman. He went back to Amsterdam and he had a little bit of money and he bought a house that was kind of like a little castle sort of thing. Not really, but it still was a, a lovely place. And he hired a great grower to begin growing those strains of seeds out, a fellow named Neville Schoenmakers. Steve Hager got wind of this, my boss, flew to Amsterdam to meet Mr. Dronkers and Neville Schoenmakers and discovered that they were growing and beginning to hybrid seeds and beginning to mix and match to grow new strains out. And Hager dubbed their place Cannabis Castle. And so he wrote a cover story, a long cover story called, you know, Something Something at Cannabis Castle. What year? Uh, let's say 87, 88, 86. It all happens in And a, within a couple of years, Steve realized no one is protecting the seed stock the genetic stock of cannabis around the world. Well, the parent, the male parent, Colombian gold, is the male parent of half the world's stock. I mean, you know, half the world's marijuana plants. If that gets eliminated, what's the father plant now? So, Steve Hager came up with this incredibly, looked crazy, but turned out to be fantastic idea of, let's us at high times have an event in Amsterdam where people pay to come and be judges of the world's best strains. And those strains will then be protected, the seeds of those strains will be protected for future use as a, in a genetic bank. And it sounds corny because it's like, oh man, so all the stoners go to Amsterdam and smoke a lot of dope. And, and the answer is yes, that was one part of it. But protecting those seed strains was vital. And Steve Hager knew that if he could get Neville and Ben Dronkers on board with the idea of protecting those strains, they would have the wherewithal and physical and financial capability to do it. So what started out as a very small event, by 96 it was my turn to go run that event. Or, not, not to, it was always Steve Hager's event, but it was my year to write about it, me behind the scenes to talk to everybody and uh, by that time it had grown to I think we had 
a year earlier we had 100 judges. This year, in 96, we suddenly had 2,000. I mean, we were overwhelmed. We had no concept of what to do with There's a line outside in the street that's three blocks long. You know, Amsterdam is very prim and proper, and you can do what you want and get away with it. But people on the street were getting pissed off that we got 2,000 people out here smoking dope. What's going on? And they were mad because we couldn't get them through. We had no idea how many people were coming. We couldn't get them through, you know, getting their credentials for the conference ride and getting their seed strains ride and getting their marijuana ride. It was a huge mess, but it was a spectacular, fantastic, huge mess. And uh, I still happening. That cup still happens, but it now happens in Canada. It happens in Washington. It happens in Denver. It happens in Mexico. You know, High Times, I think, does a good part of its living, and a lot of other people do as well, doing various cannabis cup uh, around different states and, and different countries. And almost always, somebody's going to be chosen the winner of this indoor hybrid strain, this pure strain, this sativa strain, you know, etc. Somebody's going to pres- walk away. Presume that a lot of that has gone into the medical marijuana. Now you have the medical marijuana cups. And the medical marijuana cups are going much more for what effect this will have on a disease rather than how high it will get you or how many colors you'll see. And so, um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a fan of them. I like the idea of protecting seed stock. I like protecting seed stock of trees, flowers, tulips, you know, potatoes. Whatever you've got, I think the more real stock we have, the real genetic material we have, the less we need to depend on some big company to do genetic modifications to keep that strain alive. No, I'd rather see the original strain and, you know, that's that's what we'll work with. All right. And I include that with marijuana, which I think is a, a wonderful medicine for most people. Lorenzo also wanted me to get you to weigh in on your opinion about where we are with medical uh, with marijuana legalization or legalities, where we are. I, I know. I left High Times years ago. I still write a column, a long column, 15 to 1800 words a month for Skunk Magazine out of Canada about the drug war. But I'm no longer on the front lines like I was for years and years in terms of pretty much being able to say which way the wind blows, which senator is going this way on that particular issue. I think certainly with medical marijuana, it's getting very difficult for states to keep it illegal. I think that we will certainly, I, I will, I'll go out and live and say I believe that President Obama, three days before he leaves office, is going to make some declarations regarding the state of marijuana and marijuana schedule on the CIA list, on the DEA list of controlled substances. And since he's allowed to, he doesn't need anyone in the Senate or Congress to say okay. I think three days, four days before he leaves, oh, by the way, marijuana is no longer, you know, on the first, number one. Marijuana has been moved to number three. So you can work with it if you want to. You can get it from a doctor anywhere in the country. You can prescribe it. You can grow it. You can, you know, as long as you have a note. I, I have a feeling because the evidence is way, way too overwhelming at this point that for medicinal value, this plant is a wonder drug. In terms of legality of uh, smoking for fun, 
I think you're seeing in Colorado, whether people like to admit it or not, since they've made it legal, since shops have opened up where you can go in and buy your weed, murders are down, car wrecks are down, police arrests are down, violence is down, violence against women is down, violence in the family is down, rapes are down. Every major category of crime is down in Colorado, and most of them pretty significantly. The number one crime was getting arrested for marijuana. Take that away, let people smoke marijuana, and people tend to be a little more mellow. How does that play out in five years? I don't know. Does everybody just get goofy and watch TV and everybody forgets to go to work? I don't think so, but I think politicians who have a stake in the game against marijuana are going to say, we don't know enough yet for several years. You know, the fact is, there are going to be some people who are lazy whether they're smoking pot or not. And if they don't want to work, they're not going to work. If they want to be on a public dole and think it looks good to look like a bum, okay. But I think most people are going to say, hey, I can smoke when I get home. I can have a beer when I get home. But no, I can't have a beer at work. And I can't smoke a joint at work. I got it. I think most people will go that way. And I think right now that's how it's playing out. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Twenty years ago, if you were into cannabis, it seemed like California was the best place to be. But today, it uh, seems like Colorado might be that place. And regarding the money that can be raised from cannabis sales, well, right now, the state of Colorado has collected around $60 million in marijuana taxes that, (laughs) you ready for this, ultimately may have to be given back to its taxpayers as the result of a strange quirk in their laws. Now, wouldn't it be great if Colorado had to give all of its citizens enough money to buy their year's supply of pot? (laughs) It won't happen, of course, but it sure is fun to dream about. And uh, regarding the Amsterdam edition of the High Times Cannabis Cup, I've done a lot of thinking about the significance, well, at least for me, the significance of that event. I only attended one time. It was the 11th Cup, and it was held in November of 1998. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you've already heard my story about attending a McKenna workshop in August of 1998 and then going to the Palenque event with him in January 1999. And uh, that was when I made what I call my hard left turn. What I don't think I've mentioned, however, is the profound effect that the Cannabis Cup had on me in between those two conferences. At the time, I was living in Florida and had only one friend with whom I could share a joint. We were literally at the end of the line back then. So I go to Amsterdam for the cup, and along with my 2,000 new best friends, (laughs) I became a judge for the small price of, uh, I guess, maybe 200 bucks or something like that. And for what it's worth, I can prove that I voted for the winner of that year's cup, which was Super Silver Haze. And the reason that I can prove it is that I still have my ballot. (laughs) You see, I was, uh, well, I was a little too stoned that week to remember when and where we had to turn our ballots in. Now, after much reflection, I've come to realize that the big breakthrough in my thinking that took place that week in Amsterdam was largely precipitated by the fact that for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of other people just like me people who enjoyed a toke now and then. 
It was a truly liberating experience to be in the midst of so many smokers, and coupled with uh, some other things that happened that week, it uh, was the catalyst, I think, that put my mind in the state that enabled me to take my hard left turn in Palenque a couple months later. If you've never been in a large crowd with a lot of people smoking pot at the same time, well, then it's something that you most definitely owe it to yourself to experience. Today there are many opportunities to do just that in uh, many of our countries, so if you get the chance to attend such an event, it might be worth your time to uh, go out of your way and experience such a thing firsthand. You know, it could even change your life. Well, there was so much that Peter covered in the past hour and a half that I don't know what one or two things to comment on, but for me, one of the most significant facts about our psychedelic community today is that its three major founders were men that were so straight and involved in the status quo that I, for one, wouldn't really care to spend any time with them. These men, of course, are Hoffman, Schultes, and Wasson. And if you're interested at all in the history of the tribe, well, this is something that I believe deserves more awareness on your part. Let me play for you one more time what Peter had to say about them. Uh, Hoffman told a couple of stories that night about spending time with Schultes and Wasson and going to Mexico and uh, spending time with a younger author, the fellow who wrote... Uh, uh, Ayahuasca analogs. Did Hoffman take ayahuasca? No. But he talked about eating magic mushrooms and watching the fellow who wrote Ayahuasca analogs, watching his wife dance under the moonlight and describing being 90 years old and saying, I was so young when I watched her dance and Schultes next to me and was in the other side. Who would guess? We are the fathers of the whole movement. We were not trying to be. We were scientists. And there she was dancing on the moonlight. And there we were, 20 years old again. I mean, he was bringing tears to your eyes, listening to him from 4,000 miles, 5,000 miles away, describing being in Mexico with the other two and some other famous people. Just think about it. Three men who were most likely more conservative than you and I will ever be were the ones who brought psychedelics back into the light after a 2,000-year hiatus. And that man mentioned, uh, the one who wrote Ayahuasca Analogs, was none other than Jonathan Ott, one of the two co-inventors of the word entheogen. Now, I think that it must have been one of Jonathan's girlfriends who they were watching dance, because, uh, well, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think Jonathan ever got married. I do know that on the occasions when I saw him, he was almost always in the company of a strikingly beautiful woman, but never a wife to my knowledge. And just one more word about Jonathan, whose uh, talks I've played here in the salon, by the way. Without a doubt, Jonathan Ott has the most intensely brilliant mind that I have ever encountered. He may be difficult to deal with from time to time, but what a mind he has. Uh, he, he actually may be the only genius that I've ever met. 
Now, I hope that you found it as fascinating as I did when, uh, after less than a favorable critique, uh, but I think a fair critique, of Terrence McKenna's work, Peter mentioned that the highlight of his writing career was when Tom Robbins called and told him that Terrence McKenna had given Tom Peter's phone number. Now, for those who have never had the opportunity to meet Terrence, uh, this should give you some measure of what a deep impact he had on people. I can't say that I personally found Terrence to be what is called charismatic. It was, uh, well, it was something much deeper than that, I think. I don't know what to call it, but when a powerful person like Peter Gorman can get excited by the simple fact that Terrence has saved his phone number, well, it seems to me that, well, that speaks volumes about the Bard McKenna. Speaking of whom, uh, it reminds me that it's about time for me to play another one of his recordings here in the salon. Now, what I forgot to mention last week is that Peter Gorman now has a new website, and it was built by our mutual friend Hector, who was uh, also in Peter's study when the interview we just heard was recorded. The URL for the website is www.pgorman.com. And it's really worth your time to go there and see some of the pictures of Peter from his younger days, uh, back when he was a young adventurer, as contrasted to his being an old adventurer today, I should add. <laughs> the adventure never stops for people like Peter. Also, uh, both on Peter's website and in today's program notes, you'll find links to purchase his books. Uh, in particular, his Sappo book, as far as I can tell, is the only book about that substance that you can find. It may even be the first book written exclusively about Sappo, and uh, most likely it's going to become a collector's item, which uh, is why I ordered a copy for myself this morning. Now, in closing for today, I want once again to thank Hector Glass, Tom Huckabee, George Wada, and the rest of their crew for conducting and recording this interview for us here in the salon. Hopefully, uh, you have picked up a little bit more of the history of this interesting tribe of which you have self-selected to become a member. And you'll be hearing more from me about Peter in the months ahead as uh, later this year, he's going to be featured on the Discovery Channel here in the States. And I'll be sure to let you know in advance when that's going to happen. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>